And if the Son comes, how shall we greet him? Shall we not dread him? Shall we not fear him after so lengthy a session with shade? Though we have wept for him, though we have prayed all through the night years, what if we wake one shimmering morning to hear the fierce hammering of his firm knuckles hard on the door? Shall we not shudder? Shall we not flee into the shelter, the dear thick shelter of the familiar propitious haze? These profound words by former poet laureate Gwendolyn Brooks offer us a window into what Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome experienced on that first Easter morning when they arrived at the tomb where Jesus was laid and found the stone rolled away. Their eyes squinting to hold back tears of the deepest and most unimaginable grief were jolted open wide by an open tomb and a strange young man dressed in sparkling robes declaring, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. This angelic figure then commissioned the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. How would you react if you were in their shoes in this story? As the Japanese feminist Hisako Kinukawa reminds us, we cannot forget that these three Galilean women had put their entire lives on the line for this prophet and his struggle. They'd followed him from Galilee and provided for him out of their own resources and come up with him to Jerusalem for this act of civil disobedience at Herod's temple. They looked on from a distance as he was tortured and crucified and they stayed with him until he died. And they were the last people to see his body when it was laid in the tomb. Throughout the entire gospel, Mark presents these women as the models of discipleship. When all the male disciples had betrayed, abandoned, and denied him, these women remained faithful to the very bitter end. And bitter it was to see Jesus crucified, to hear his screams and to be able to do nothing to relieve them, to be able to do nothing to stop it. Can you imagine how it felt for them to lose their teacher in such a horrifying way and to watch all the time and the money that they'd invested in his movement of love and justice be nailed to the cross, killed with a sword and buried in the ground? The loss, grief, the depression alone would have been a ponderous and paralyzing burden to carry. So how, how did these Galilean women muster up the strength to rise up and get out of the bed on Easter morning, let alone gather up spices together and embark on a journey to Jesus' grave? Their courageous decision to attend his body becomes even more extraordinary when we consider the extreme danger these women faced from the Roman authorities who had just executed their leader for treason and sedition. 
Crucifixion was reserved for political dissidents and rebels, and one of the reasons it was such a horrible way to die is that those condemned to the cross were not afforded a funeral or given a proper burial. They were considered terrorists and left on their crosses to become carrion for birds and animals as a warning to their followers and would-be revolutionaries who might be considering taking up their mantle. But when Joseph of Arimathea used his privilege as a member of the Sanhedrin to intervene with Pilate in order to get Jesus taken down from the cross and buried in his family cemetery, that created an opportunity for a funeral, but only a faint one. Holding a funeral for a revolutionary who was executed for treason would have been seen as an act of resistance, and these women could have been harassed and assaulted, kidnapped and apprehended by the authorities, tortured for information, or simply executed just like their leader. They were extremely vulnerable. The terror of the empire was very real. They had seen it in full force with their own eyes, which is why they planned Jesus' funeral. For early in the morning, when the soldiers might still be asleep in a drunken stupor from the night before, and on the first day of the week when the Passover Sabbath was just over, and at sunrise so that it would be light outside, they were unbelievably brave, but also calculated. Yet, no matter how careful they were, the women were memorializing a rebel who was crucified by the empire, and they knew that this funeral would have been seen as an act of rebellion as well. Their journey to the grave was a march. The funeral would be a protest. In their own unique and subversive way, these women were rising up against the violence of the empire. Grief can be immensely powerful when it is harnessed and directed. I'm not just talking about the show WandaVision, where the grief of a superhero who lost her husband burst forth, raising him from the dead and hexing an entire town. I'm also talking about women like the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. In 1977, a group of mothers who lost their children in Argentina's dirty war were united by their grief and came together and began holding funeral vigils for their children outside the president's palace every Thursday to call attention to the plight of all the desparecidos or disappeared persons. The dirty war in Argentina was part of Operation Condor, which was a period of United States-backed state terrorism in Argentina, where our military trained, armed, and fought with right-wing death squads that hunted down, kidnapped, tortured, and murdered political dissidents. Those taken were young people below the age of 35. Most were teenagers and high school students, young professionals and union workers who were suspected of having opposed the government. The victims' bodies were vanished, or disappeared, which meant there were no bodies to have funerals, just grieving families left in the wake. 30,000 are estimated to have been disappeared. But the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo refused to let their children, their loved ones, and their neighbors be forgotten. 
At the funerals they hosted every Thursday in front of the president's house, they wore white headscarves with the names of the disappeared written on them. And they carried signs with pictures of their children, and they marched and they sang. And they took out ads in the newspaper with the names of those who were missing. The government called them Las Locas, or the Mad Women. But their persistence paid off. Their weekly funeral protests not only attracted the attention and measures of the government and those in power, but international attention. And eventually, their funeral protests changed public perception in Argentina. The political winds shifted, and the mothers were invited to help identify the victims, enabling the authorities to prosecute the juntas for crimes against humanity. Grief has immense revolutionary power when it is harnessed and directed. Look at the power we see in the mothers of the movement here in America, a group of seven mothers united by grief who joined together because all their children were killed in similar circumstances. The mothers of Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Dontre Hamilton, Jordan Davis, Michael Brown, Hedaya Pendleton, and Sandra Bland came together to use their grief to highlight the injustice of the loss they endured, to raise awareness about police violence, and to rally support for a new and better world. One of the mothers, Lucy McBath, who lost her son, Jordan Davis, is now an elected representative. Then there's Sandy Hook Promise, which was started by grieving parents and Moms Demand Action, who are working together to create a future free from gun violence in our country. Like the women who rose up on Easter to protest death and hold a funeral for Jesus, mothers and fathers have long been turning their grief into protest against violence, death, and empire. Grief has the power to start great movements against violence, to spark an uprising against a culture of death. Grief has the power to raise the dead. Why is grief so powerful? Because grief is born from the combustible combination of the two most powerful experiences in human existence, love and loss. Grief is a concentrated form of the deepest love we can experience combined with the suffering and pain of loss, which creates the kindling for an uprising. That's what the resurrection truly means. It's the beginning of a revolution against violence and death, the beginning of an uprising, an uprising against all the systems of domination, against all the forces of oppression and injustice and dehumanization, an uprising of love in a world of apathy, passivity, and indifference. When Mary Magdalene, James's mother Mary, and Salome rose up and went to the tomb that morning with spices in one hand and grief in the other, they were saying, it's not over yet. It's not over yet, Rome. It's not over yet, Sanhedrin. It's not over yet, Pilate. It's not over yet, Herod, chief priests and scribes, Caiaphas and Ananias. It's not over yet, crowds. It's not over yet, devil. It's not over yet, torture and cross and death and evil. It's not over until we say it's over. We still need to have a funeral. Rome and Pilate, Herod, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, Caiaphas, Ananias, the crowds, the people, the empire, the devil, they all thought that if they could kill Jesus and they could scatter his followers and stop his movement of love forever. 
but they miscalculated and underestimated these Galilean women who rose up in the morning and marched toward an empty tomb. They were the kind of women who, when their feet hit the floor each morning, the devil says, oh no, she's up. Oh no, she's awake. The empire says, oh no, she's arisen again. Long before Fred Hampton proclaimed it, these Galilean women declared, you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. You can kill a freedom fighter, but you can't kill freedom. You can crucify a liberator, but you can't crucify liberation. You can murder a leader, but you can't murder the movement. You can assassinate a resistor, but you can't assassinate the resistance. You can kill a lover, but you can't kill love. The uprising of Jesus started and will never be defeated. That's the thing about resurrection. Resurrection definitively and decisively means that Rome, death, and evil are not the most powerful forces in the world or the final word on reality. There is something more powerful than death, more powerful than empire, more powerful than evil, love. Love is more powerful than death. And that means the future is always open. There is no horizon. Nothing is impossible. Hope is alive and well and headed back to Galilee to begin the uprising again. Violence and death do not have the final word. God has the final word and God is love, so love is the last and final word. The wealthy and powerful thought crucifying Jesus would eliminate the threat he posed, but the movement he created did not end with his death. In a very real sense, Jesus was resurrected in the women, in the people who believed his message of hope and justice and who carried the movement forward. He rose up when the women rose up. They felt his presence among them, which gave them the courage to transform the world with passion and courage and love. They woke up, rose up, and began a powerful uprising that altered the course of human history. Clarence Jordan once wrote, If there's any proof that God raised Jesus from the dead, it is not the empty tomb, but the full hearts of the transformed disciples. The crowning evidence that he lives is not a vacant grave, but a spirit-filled fellowship. Not a rolled-away stone, but a carried-away church. Yes, a carried-away church, carried away by an uprising of love. At the end of the story, when Mark tells us the women went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We often imagine the women ran and hid, never told the disciples about the young man's command. But that's our bias. We love to make assumptions about the women. But their flight from the tomb was not a flight from the young man's command. And their silence to the general public does not mean they did not go immediately and tell the other disciples. These women were consistently faithful and courageous through the whole gospel, and all indications pointed to them going to Galilee, following Jesus the way they always had, from the beginning all the way to the cross, to the empty tomb, and beyond. We may want the women to run away in fear and never speak of what happened for the rest of their lives because that is what we would do. Our knees buckle. <laughs> 
when we consider what it means to go to Galilee and resume the way of Jesus who had just been killed. We know the consequences all too well. It means becoming part of a movement that passionately and persistently rises up against violence, oppression, and death, which can get you persecuted, crucified, arrested, and killed. It means becoming part of an uprising of love that requires great conviction and sacrificial service. But joining the uprising of love is exactly what it means to be Easter people, to participate in the resurrection, to rise up against all the forces of evil and death in our world. Mark didn't end the gospel with, they said nothing to anyone to cast aspersions on the women, but as an open-ended invitation to us. Mark intentionally left the story of the resurrection incomplete and unfinished as a cliffhanger ending that beckons us to complete the narrative and finish the story ourselves. To finish the story by rising up and taking up the mantle and continuing to follow Jesus again in spite of the cross, joining the revolution against death and offering our lives to this uprising of love. The uprising didn't begin with a sermon or even the shocking discovery of an empty tomb. It began in the hearts of three women. It began with grief. It began with a super concentrated combustible combination of deep love and deep suffering. It began with a plan for a funeral. It began with spices and oil. It began with a dangerous journey toward the grave of a revolutionary who was crucified for treason. It began with three women who said to themselves and to the world, it's not over until we say it's over. It began with a protest against violence and death and empire. It began with the question, who will roll away the stone? It began with alarm. It began with a discovery that Jesus' body was gone. It began with the good news that Jesus got up and went to Galilee and is waiting for you and for us. It began with a mission and a commission to be the first witnesses and the first preachers of the resurrection. It began with running and with terror and with amazement. It began with an open invitation for every one of us to follow the lead of these women, to turn our grief into power, to rise up in protest against death and to join the uprising of love. And it begins again every Easter with us. So what will we do with the sun when it comes? Will we greet him? Yes, we will not dread him. We will not fear him. Even after so lengthy a session with shade. If we wake one shimmering morning to hear the fierce hammering of his firm knuckles hard on the door, we will not shudder. We will not flee. Instead, we will rise up. Like the women in the morning, we rise up. Like Jesus on the third day, we rise up. Like flour when it's baking, we rise up. Like plants in the sun, we rise up. Like moons and like suns, we rise up. With the century of tides, we rise up. Just like hopes springing high, we rise up. Just like the day, we rise up. Always unafraid, we rise up. High like the waves, we rise up. In spite of the ache, we rise up and we do it a thousand times again.
like a movement of love, we rise up. Like the voices of a choir, we rise up and we sing Alleluia. Because we are Easter people, and that is our song. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.